The following audio is from Axe Church in Leander, Texas. More information about Axe is available at axechurchleander.com. All right, I've actually got um, two readings this morning. One is out of Galatians, and the other one uh, is the Lord's Prayer. So let's read those out real quick. So Galatians 3, 7 through 17. So you know it is the people of faith who are children of Abraham. The Bible foresaw that God would justify the nations by faith. So it announced the gospel to Abraham in advance when it declared that the nations will be blessed in you. So you see, the people of faith are blessed along with faithful Abraham. Because, you see, those who belong to the works of the law camp are under a curse. Yes, that's what the Bible says. Cursed is everyone who doesn't stick fast by everything written in the book of the law to perform it. But because nobody is justified before God in the law, it is clear that the righteous shall live by faith. The law, however, is not by faith, Rather, the one who does them shall live in them. The Messiah redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse on our behalf. As the Bible says, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. This was so that the blessing of Abraham could flow through to the nations in King Jesus, and so that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. My brothers and sisters, let me use a human illustration. When someone makes a covenanted will, Nobody sets it aside or adds to it. Well, the promises were made to Abraham and his seed, that is, his family. It doesn't say his seeds, as though referring to several families, but indicates a single family by saying, and to your seed, meaning the Messiah. And then our reading from Matthew 6, 9 through 13. So this is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, may your name be honored. May your kingdom come. May your will be done as in heaven, so on earth. Give us today the bread we need now and forgive us the things we owe as we too have forgiven what was owed to us. Don't bring us into the great trial, but rescue us from evil. Hello, everybody. Um, I was going to say I'm filling in for Gabe today, but that's not actually true because Gabe's not here. So um, yes, I'm filling in for whoever. Um, Today's sermon... It's called The Faithful Israelite, is the name of the sermon. Um, and I want to just read uh, Matthew 6, 9-13 one more time before I get into the sermon, which is the Lord's Prayer. So this is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, may your name be honored, may your kingdom come, may your will be done as in heaven, so on earth. Give us today the bread we need now, and forgive us the things we owe as we too have forgiven what was owed to us. Don't bring us into the great trial, but rescue us from evil. Now, straight out of the gate, before I even get going, so that this doesn't plague the entire sermon, some of you are probably thinking right now that the translation I'm using um, to make this line from the Lord's, it makes this line from the Lord's Prayer almost unrecognizable from the traditional form that we recite every week, where it says, and lead us not into temptation. And I agree. It does feel like I'm portraying the text when I read it this way. Um, However, the more I've looked into the context of the prayer, the more I'm convinced that the word temptation might not be the best choice available to us when rendering the Greek word uh, pyrismos, which can also be translated trial or test. And I say that because the word temptation for us today as a culture normally conjures up thoughts of exclusive personal temptation. Um, And I'm not convinced it's the best term to use in the historical context of our text today. 
Uh, because one, this prayer is a corporate prayer. It starts with our Father, and there's a us and a lot of we's. It's not just the individual as much as it does apply to each individual. Um, hence, I went with the translation I did. So if you could just trust me for 30 minutes uh, and get through the sermon, and if it's still plaguing, you've got one of those intellectual minds that it's going to bug you the entire time, you're free to spend the rest of the afternoon digging into the Greek and Hebrew and email me how, why you disagree. Anyway, <laughs> so now that's off my chest. I've been honest. We can move on. Okay, so um, one, of, uh, one of the greatest paradigm shifts I've had over the last few years of studying the Bible is coming to the realization that the writers of the Gospels, Gospels were not just like on-site witnesses. They weren't just recording what they saw like some kind of law clerk. Rather, the Gospel writers were creative theologians, skillful narrators and storytellers, purposefully creating theological masterpieces in their Gospels, each in their own unique way, in each in their own, their, their own unique style. And to be honest with you, I've become, I've become re-energized in my reading of the Bible because of that fact, knowing that the authors have purposely written in such a way to lead us to see something in the way that they tell the story. It's almost like the, I'm looking now for clues. I'm looking for what they're trying to lead me as I read through the, through the narrative. So when studying the Lord's Prayer for this sermon and being given, I was given the sixth petition. For some reason, they like to give me the stuff that has with sin and stuff, and I don't know why. I've done David and Bathsheba, and now I get the one line, I get sin and temptation. So somebody thinks I'm qualified to speak on that, which I'm not. Um, so, but when studying this line from the Lord's Prayer, I saw that Matthew created a be- the most beautiful contradiction in the sixth petition of the Lord's Prayer when I looked at it in the larger context of Matthew's Gospel. And it's something I'd never noticed before. When he says, and do not, lead, do not bring us into the great trial, but rescue us from evil. Now to see this contradiction that I think Matthew purposefully leaves in the Lord's Prayer, we have to move ahead a little bit in his gospel. This time we see the same petition, the same language, however, not as an instruction by Jesus to Israel of how to pray. Rather, it is the prayer Jesus makes himself with great earnestness and sorrow in the Garden of Gethsemane. So I'm just going to read here of that scene in Gethsemane. So Jesus went with them to the place called Gethsemane. He, you sit here, he said to the disciples, while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee with him and began to be very upset and distressed. My soul is overwhelmed with grief, he said, even to death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Then, going a little further on, he fell on his face and prayed. My father, he said, if it's possible, please, please let this cup go away from me. But not what I want, but what you want. He came back to the disciples and found them asleep. So he said to Peter, couldn't you keep watch with me for a single hour? Watch and pray so that you do not get pulled down into the time of testing. The spirit is eager, but the body is weak. Again, for the second time, he went off and said, my father, If it is not possible for this to pass unless I drink it, let your will be done. Again he came and found them asleep. Their eyes were heavy. Once more he left them and went away. He prayed for the third time, using the same words once again. Then he came back to the disciples. You can sleep now, he said, and have a good rest. Look, the time has come and the Son of Man is given over into the hands of wicked people. We have to see 
the beautiful contradiction that Matthew creates here in between these two passages, in between the Lord's Prayer and in between Gethsemane. We are purposely led by Matthew to see that Jesus taught his hearers to pray not to be led into the great trial and to be delivered from evil, and she was indeed delivered. Yet, we would then see him in anguish, praying fervently for that same deliverance, yet he would not be delivered. He would instead be led directly into that great trial, and he would be delivered over to evil, the sum of sin and evil all gathered in this one accumulated moment. In order to try to understand the theology created between these two beautiful contradictions, I want to direct our attention, attention to three things that are happening in the sixth petition, petition of the Lord's Prayer in its original historical context. So this is what we see. These are my three points. In this petition's context, we are seeing Israel reconstituted. In this petition, petitions, I cannot say that word, so anyway, <laughs> bear with me. In this petition's paradox, we are seeing Israel represented. And by God's answer to this petition, we are seeing Israel redeemed. So firstly, into re Israel reconstituted. Now we've got to see that the Lord's Prayer sits in a specific place in Matthew's Gospel. It is in the middle of a certain moment. And that moment, um, as you know from Matthew 5 to 8, is the Sermon on the Mount. And as you study the Sermon on the Mount, you'll see that it is really about the reconstitution, the renewing of Israel. Jesus is addressing the nation of Israel right there under Roman occupation and is summoning true Israel to her vocational calling. He is challenging her with a new way of being Israel. Now the Sermon on the Mount is pur purposely full of actions and language um, by Jesus that would have evoked scenes from Israel's national beginning and its great exodus away from uh, Egypt. And Matthew has done this purposefully. It would have certainly appeared to those present that he was reconstituting Israel. Matthew shows us in a various, a various amount of ways throughout his gospel about this, in ways that his early Jewish readers would have seen the symbolic nature of instantly Think about this for a moment. Jesus is in the wilderness being tested for 40 days right after coming out of, um, after being baptized in the Jordan. Symbolically of Israel in the wilderness for 40 years after she had crossed through the Red Sea. John the Baptist shows up and is baptizing people in the middle of the Jordan. Symbolic of Israel passing again through the Red Sea. Later in the gospel, we see Jesus choose 12 disciples. The image would have instantly evoked the symbolism of the original 12 tribes of Israel. You've got to think about this. There hasn't been 12 visible tribes in Israel since the Assyrian invasion of 734 BC. So when Jesus comes along and just happens to choose the number 12, they weren't all sitting there going, that's a great number for discipleship groups. He was thinking much deeper than that. It was evoking Israel's own ethnic nationality and beginning. That was how their nation was founded on those 12 tribes of Israel. Jesus walking up on a hillside addressing a crowd regarding details of the law would have evoked images and symbolism of Moses giving the original law on Sinai. Yet Jesus is calling and challenging his hearers to live as the renewed Israel, but with a deeper understanding of the heart of the law. You recall Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount is saying continually, you have heard it said, 
and then he goes deeper on the very same laws that they were given on Sinai by Moses. So if you can see, he's really, he's renewing, he's rebuilding, he's challenging Israel to be what she originally was. Now, admittedly, I think it's, in general, it's extremely difficult for us modern Western readers to see something like the Lord's Prayer or the Sermon on the Mount in this kind of Israel-infused manner um, that I'm speaking of here. I almost, I almost feel like I need to do a whole sermon just to say why I'm talking about Israel so much, because we just don't naturally relate the text that we know to, this, to, to Israel as a nation. One of these reasons is because we're just not unsaturated in the Old Testament enough to notice the clear Old Testament um, associations, but also because over time we have just basically drifted as a culture, primarily to read the Bible in cut-up sections instead of diving into whole arguments or books. Sometimes we look at the Scripture as if each saying or moment stood alone by itself. And an unfortunate byproduct of that is that we tend, and I think unconsciously, to see passages of Scripture and things that Jesus said, like the Lord's Prayer, much like we would see a Chinese proverb in a fortune cookie, treating them as timeless and universal knowledge, as if they could survive or make sense outside of the established Jewish narrative they were birthed from. So that unfortunately, by implication, we are conveying amongst ourselves and to the world that those sayings could have really been said at any time in history to enter any group of people and still meant and, and conveyed the same thing. By devoiding the text of their specifically Jewish context, we end up by default conveying that Jesus could have just as, just as easily been born of a virgin into the Greek ethnicity, gathered 12 Greek disciples, stepped up on a hill on Athens, spoke great wisdom, talked about forgiveness and love and community and done healings and been put to death under a foreign leader, died for the sins of the world and raised and ascended into heaven in their culture and under their watch. And it all would have pretty much conveyed the same point and had the same universal effect in the end. And I want to argue strongly that until we grow to truly understand clearly why that could not have been the case, that we are disconnecting ourselves and more importantly, disconnecting Jesus from the longer narrative that the New Testament writers are plugging us into when we read the Scripture. However, fortunately, as we know, it is not just at any time or to any people this sermon, and within it, its prayer is given. Jesus was born under the law, born into the lineage of David, born and lived among and addressed the nation of Israel, the descendants of Abraham. And why is that so important to grasp? Because Israel is more than just a nation. It is a vocation. Israel is God's answer to the plight of the Adamic race. And as the scriptural narrative had presented it, the fate of the nations, the fate of Gentiles, the fate of all of us, was irreversibly bound up with the fate of Israel. Israel was the bearer of God's promise to redeem the world that had fallen in Adam the vessel through which he would once again bless the nations of the earth. You've got to think about it. This is why the Bible introduces Adam and the fall of that and fall of man and goes through 11 chapters of all the chaos that that brought and then basically restarts with the call of Abraham in chapter 12 and never looks back. We follow Abraham and his descendants right into the writings of Paul so that even here in Galatians, several books later, how many books in the world? 60, 50-something books later, we are still in Galatians talking about Abraham. 
If the Bible is anything, if the Bible is anything, it is a story of Israel. It is a story of a promise made to Abraham. Israel was supposed to be the faithful servant of God, the light of the world. They were to be the city set on a hill. They were to be the salt of the earth. They were to be the guide to the blind, a light to the people in darkness, a teacher of the foolish, as Romans says. This was all part of their covenantal vocation. God made a covenant with Abraham that through his seed, the nations would be blessed. The problem is, however, that Israel had been continually unfaithful to that covenant. The answer to sinful humanity has been found to be herself part of sinful humanity. And because of her sin, has been continually been, been led into exile. In the time of Jesus, Israel as a nation had been in exile for centuries under a rotation of foreign empires, and her prayer had become forged with the desire of liberation from those nations. They had earnest hope in the promises of God regarding their nation and its favored status, but it had mixed with righteous zeal and had brewed both resistance and retaliation, hate, and, deadly, and a deadly concoction that was just waiting for rebellion. Hope of deliverance had created a zealous holding to the parts of the law that distinguished Jew from Gentile in order to show covenantal loyalty in and hope to see God act. I want to say something about it real quick. We have often, unfortunately, seen Pharisees as just moralists versus, you know, Jesus was this kind of free-living hippie that wanted to get away from law. It's, it's not that clear. If you understand that the Pharisees were in basically in exile, they were enslaved. And when you're in slavery and you've been given this, this contra contrast at this point, God has given them a promise that through Abraham you will be blessed. And there's all these promises in the Old Testament of, of, of Israel being the light to the world, of being this great nation, but they found themselves enslaved the last 600, 700, 800 years, empire after empire, and they keep thinking, when is God going to free his people? These are the people who saw God come into the most powerful empire of the world in Egypt and lead them straight out the door with gold and everything else they took from the Egyptians. Open the sea and walk through. You can imagine that their history is a little bit confident in their God, but yet here they are after empire after empire, and now here we are under the Romans, and they're still in exile Yes, they were free to walk around. They're not slaves with bricks like they were in Egypt, but Roman occupation. They were just puppets to the city of Rome. So they have that promise, but then they see the reality. So in the midst of that, you can imagine that whether, whatever, whether you're a zealot and you think war is the right way, or if you're a Pharisee who believes if we just stick to the covenant, if we just do the right things that God has prescribed, he will honor our covenantal faithfulness. So they weren't just moralists that thought they were better than everyone else. They were saying, we have to be clearly Israel. We have to follow Torah strictly, and then God will honor us. God is the one that gave them those laws. God is the one that gave them that. Yes, they got zealous with it, but nonetheless, their whole point was to, if they could clearly separate themselves from the Gentiles, then, they would, then God would liberate them. Their depression of status had created a desire however, to force the promises that God had made to Israel to come to pass in their own way. They would, if God would not make the kingdom come, they would by force make the kingdom come. And it's in that kind of unrestful society that Jesus gives this prayer. It is the, this unrest that makes this prayer not religious, but revolutionary and controversial. I believe that the moment when this prayer was given, the Lord's Prayer, 
that it less resembled a prayer in a quiet church gathering. More, instead, it, it more would resemble standing in the middle of an angry political mob and craftily exposing the wrongful motives for all of them for being there. There was some tension in saying this. This revolutionary prayer was one of leading Israel to pray for the reconstituting of her calling. It was to be the prayer of true Israel, not merely ethnic Israel. Those who would hear and heed his words. An Israel that would be focused on God's glory being honored among the nations instead of blaspheme like it was. An Israel that cared about his kingship over the nations of all the earth, not just ethnic Israel. One that cared about forgiveness of debt rather than which never forgives and demands retaliation. An Israel that cared about daily dependence and gratefulness instead of anger and fostering a way of, to secure wealth. An Israel that cared about deliverance from God rather than deliverance through war. This prayer sits in line with everything else that was said in the Sermon on the Mount. For her to be that city set on a hill again. For her to once again be the means by which God would bless the families of the earth. Yet there is a problem. Israel is in exile because of sin. And to end that exile would require the forgiveness of sin. Israel, because of the law, is under a curse. And that curse cannot be lifted. The promise to the Gentiles was held up because of the vessel. To go back to Galatians real quick where it says it's quite clear. Because you see, those who belong to the works of the law camp are under a curse. Yes, that's what the Bible says. Cursed is everyone who doesn't stick fast by everything that is written in the book of the law to perform it. So the nation that is carrying the blessing to reach the Gentiles, to reach us, is held up and is instead has become cursed. Instead of being the faithful vessel to deliver the promises of God made to Abraham, they have instead become that which is in its unfaithfulness is preventing the promise from proceeding to the nations. What we need is a faithful Israel. Israel. Which brings me to the, my second point. It is here where we see Israel represented. We have to understand that Jesus was Israel's Messiah. And what the New Testament writers communicate to us about this title is primarily its represent, representational nature. And I think, unfortunately, the significance of this, of the title of Messiah, has been lost um, to the detriment of us in the West, mainly because we use the term Christ, which is the Greek translation of the, of the Hebrew word Messiah. But unfortunately, and we've all, we've all been victim of this, um, that the, we've made the word Christ as if it was like Jesus' last name, as if his mother's name was Mary Christ and Joseph Christ. It's not a surname. The, the Christ means the Messiah. And in, in, in the Jewish context, not only was it, does it mean king, it also has a lot to do with the king having the representative nature of the entire nation. Listen real quickly, and this is primarily the reason I, I use Galatians as our, as our text. So go to, going to Galatians 3 again, we carry on with our text. It says this, My brothers and sisters, let me use a human illustration. When someone makes a covenanted will, nobody sets it aside or adds to it. Well, the promises were made to Abraham and to his seed, that is, his family. It doesn't say his seeds, as though referring to several families, but it indicates a single family by saying, and to you and your seed, meaning the Messiah. 
Now, real quickly, if you back up a little bit in Galatians, you guys all remember the story of Paul when Paul gets to rebuke Peter. By the way, what an amazing religion we jumped into when in the middle of the main book, you have the main two pillars fighting one another. I just, to me, honestly, it, it is an testament to why Christianity is in the Bible is valid. Because if you're going to make a false religion, you don't have your main two guys get in a fight in the, in the beginning of it. But anyway, that's one of the glories of the scripture. But nonetheless, you have Paul rebuking Peter because at the time, there was a, you know, this is after obviously Christ has risen, there was Jewish Gentiles and then there was also Gentiles who were believing, sorry, not Jewish Gentiles, Jewish believers, and then there was Gentile believers. And you have basically two groups at this point. Um, and you see Peter, when certain head people come down from Jerusalem, Jewish believers, separates himself and refuses to eat at the same table as the Gentile believers. And Paul, no matter how important Peter was to the entire movement of the church, in the scripture, and God allows him to make sure he rebukes that one point. What he goes to in the to the Galatians is this, that his argument in, from the passage we had is that the Messiah makes one people. He represents Israel. So there is no longer ethnic Israel and Gentiles. There is one new Israel made up only of those who are by faith and believe through in the Messiah. So the reason I bring this up is what we need to understand is that Jesus is able, because of his Messiah role, to represent an entire nation in that. So, all that to say this. Maybe we could not have a faithful Israel, yet God sent a faithful Israelite that as her Messiah could represent her. Which brings me to my final point. Israel redeemed. And back to the last passage again in Galatians. And listen carefully to the language here. The Messiah redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse on our behalf. As the Bible says, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. This was so that the blessing of Abraham could flow through to the nations in King Jesus and so that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Oh, church, we need to see that God's original plan was never changed. God was not thwarted from his plan. What he began all the way back with Abraham, he finished. The promises he made to Abraham, he was faithful to keep. The nations have indeed received the blessing through Israel, but by Israel's Messiah going to the place of evil and death in her stead and exhausted its fury by becoming a curse for her and becoming the faithful Israelite representing her, by destroying the power of sin and death in a self-sacrificial love. And we here today that sit here have become part of God's promised single worldwide family to Abraham. We stand here today because the blessing of Abraham could flow through to the nations in King Jesus. My prayer for us is this. We may have recited the Lord's Prayer a thousand times in the past, and maybe in fear and weakness we may have prayed it. It may, it, uh, it may have conjured up in that sixth petition only our own personal frailty and dispensation to sin and to be tempted. But I would ask you now to consider 
Jesus saying this alongside us, maybe even in the midst of us, to his Father and our Father. And he's speaking every petition alongside us as we recite it. Yet when we get to this line, when we get to the sixth petition, knowing that while we speak it together, that he has already went and took on himself the trial that we pray not to be led into. He has already defeated the evil that we are praying to be delivered from. Let me say this about the God that we serve. He is not a God who gives his people prayers to say with no assurance of them ever being answered. No, he is the God who took on flesh and went into the great trial, who has delivered, was delivered over to evil to ensure that the prayer is answered for his people. There's nothing else on my page except for the end. So let me end with this prayer. Father, I pray for us here today, 2,000 years later, the descendants of Gentiles, that it seemed for a long time that we would have never heard this glorious message, that the promises that you made to Abraham all so long ago would have never been known to us. We would have never had songs to sing. We would have not have known your name. We would not have known the glory of a God who gave self-sacrificially, who came and became flesh. We would know nothing, Father. We'd be lost in ourselves. But I thank you that what you said you would do, you did. The promises you make, you keep. I thank you that you put on and took on flesh and became the faithful Israelite when Israel could no longer be faithful. And we thank you, Father, and we ask that as we move forward, as we pass on the faith to generations to come long after us, that they will know that the promise of Abraham made to them, maybe 2,000 years, 4,000 years for them, that long ago, that the promise was kept and you were faithful. You are the God of faithfulness, and we worship you for that. I pray, Father, as we read week after week after week the Lord's Prayer, that it will grow more and more meaningful to us and that every petition, Father, in days to come as we are old will bring us to tears because we realize the immense weight that it was in every single line that we say in that magnificent prayer. We thank you, Father, and it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Axe Church in Leander, Texas. Feel free to share this message with others and stay connected with us at axechurchleander.com.